Hi, and welcome to the Hal Anderson Podcast. Please rate the podcast and please subscribe to the podcast. And on the podcast today, Manitoba NDP leader, Wab Canoe, on the shocking new crime stats. Mark Coho, the executive director of Bike Winnipeg. There's a new survey on biking in our city and a new documentary, Aboard the Nameo. The man behind the dock, Cam Patterson, joins us on the podcast. Enjoy the podcast. Joining us now, Manitoba NDP leader, Wab Canoe. Thank you for coming in today. Appreciate Thanks for having it. me. Yeah, I uh, like it when people are lucky today. Everybody's got time to come in, and maybe they want to get outside and enjoy the nice weather. Well, I'm know. sure your bubbling yeah. personality is oh, the big please, draw, come right? On, come on. Um, uh, yes, I'm sure that yeah, has something right. to do with it, too. Uh, I wanted to get you in today because you've been very vocal on the meth crisis, and uh, we got these new crime stats yesterday. Yeah. Violent crime is up. Property crime is up. Um, and it all seems, or a large part of the increase seems to be the meth problem. And we've heard from Chief Smythe, we heard from the mayor, uh, we did get a statement from the province on some of the stuff that they've done, but they've been kind of quiet on this. And because you have had a lot to say about the meth crisis, I wanted to get you on record here. Um, because I think some people feel like an NDP government would be doing more, certainly more than what this government is doing. Some yeah, people feel yeah. that. Uh, some people might say the NDP government might do too much, but uh, certainly I think the NDP government, if it were in power, would do more than what's being done now by the Palliser Tories, the government. So what would you do to try and tackle this? It, it seems like there isn't really an answer here. Well, I think you definitely got to be there with the, the policing resources, you got to be um, there to, to address a problem, whether it's a break-in or it's somebody being robbed or it's mm. a property crime. You got to be there to address it. But you also have to focus on prevention. You have to try and head this problem off before it gets to be a crisis point. And this is one of the things that really struck me. Um, I was listening to the, the, the chief of police and some of his uh, senior brass make a community pre- presentation not too long ago within the past few months. And they said, we're not going to arrest our way out of this problem. Right. And so definitely you need the policing resources for when things hit a, a crisis point, but you also need to address things earlier on before people get to be completely uh, methed out, before they get to be complete uh, zombies, as uh, you were saying before we, we went on the air here. And I think what stands out to me about the news here is... This is an issue right across the city. I got friends who live on Charleswood Road, so that new development down Wilkes. Yeah, Wilkes. it's not in the North End or Point Douglas. It is everywhere. This is right there right. in the new development there, uh, Charleswood Road and Wilkes, right before the perimeter. Out in St. Boniface, we're knocking on doors. People are talking about their their, their cars being broken into. Um, you know, I live in uh, Crescentwood area. My vehicle has been broken into sev- several times. So if this is something you've been seeing, whether it's a property crime, whether it's uh, people approaching you and making you feel uncomfortable on the street, now you see what the reason was. Now you see what the cause was, right? Now we got the numbers to back it up. The meth issue in the city is skyrocketing. The numbers are going through the roof, and the average person is starting to feel the impacts because, you know, maybe your your vehicle got broken into, maybe your garage got broken into. Plus, if you have a relative or a friend who's caught up in this addiction, then there's the whole question of the toll it takes on your family, the pain and, you know, the, the sadness that you feel watching your loved one uh, suffer in that way. So this is a major issue that we're confronting right now, and uh, I don't think the province has done enough because... The province, for the past two years, they've been getting more than $10 million a year from the feds, specifically for things like mental health and addictions. 
and we haven't seen those investments come out the door. We should have a safe injection site, like a safe consumption site is the other term for this. Sometimes people, um, they don't like it, you know what I mean? Like you're, you're giving a place for somebody to use a drug like meth under the supervision of a, of a medical professional. I'm not asking for people to like it. You don't have to like it, mm-hmm. but guess what? It works. And so we should be using every tool in the arsenal to help uh, combat this scourge. Beyond that, like I was saying earlier, we should have a really strong approach based on prevention. And what the experts are saying today is the people who are likely to become addicts, people who are likely to struggle with addictions, are usually the people who have some unresolved trauma, some kind of pain from earlier on in life. And if they can't get the counseling, they can't get the treatment, they can't get the uh, mental health services to make themselves well, then they're going to find this negative way to try and deal with the pain that they're struggling with. So that's why the mental health piece is so important too, because we got to be there to make people well, to have a good state of mind, because if we don't do that, then all of a sudden they're going to turn to the drugs, and then the drugs fuel the crime problem. But that's not going to be easy to catch up on now, right? Because this is really at a crisis level now, and treatment and dealing, I tend to agree that we can't arrest our way out of this. So mm-hmm. if we start doing more to help these these people, that's not a quick fix. This isn't going to go away overnight, right? This is a longer-term investment, isn't it? It is, but every day that we delay is another day that puts that solution further and further into the future. So we got to start now. Mm-hmm. I think this is a real wake-up call. You know, the chief of police, the mayor, you know, them making this stand and identifying that this is a real issue. And so I hope that Winnipegers, you know, the average person thinking this issue over, I hope they take it seriously and understand that it affects them in a few ways. Obviously, we don't want to live in a city that's overrun with crime. So we got to deal with the issue on that front. But also this issue isn't contained to the inner city. This is an issue that reaches out into, you know, areas like St. Boniface that are a little further away, but it also reaches out into the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And if this issue is going to be in your backyard, now you should be motivated to try and make a positive move to combat addictions for the sake of your kids, for the sake of your grandkids, for the sake of uh, young people in the area uh, where you live. So we got to take this issue uh, a lot more serious. And I think the solutions are out there. The people who are working in, in communities, working at the organizations that are dealing with addicts, they know a lot of the good solutions, but we need to get the resources there to support them. And in particular, the province needs to step up and play mm-hmm. more of a leadership role. Well, and we did get a statement from the justice and health ministers, and I'm going to read that entire statement later, uh, or at least the bulk of it, just to you know, give that side of it. But well, I did. You don't I want did... to put your listeners to sleep, but maybe you can just kind of <laughs> but, highlight but I, the I'll top try, points. But maybe I'll try and highlight. But I did want to have you on to, to get your perspective on this. And I'll ask you one more question because we're almost out of time. Sure. Do you think it requires more boots on the ground, more officers out there? Because the police association says yes, the chief and the mayor says say, you know, we're okay. I think in the area I represent, I represent Osborne Village, I represent the Cordon Strip. When I'm talking to people who live in my area, they want to see more police officers because they see the issue with whether it's people sleeping outside or whether it's people approaching them, asking for money, making them feel unsafe because they're not sure whether that's a real panhandler or that's somebody who's trying to rob them. Uh, You need that police presence to bring about the security, also to make people feel assured that the city has their back, the province has their back. Let's keep in mind, the city had to eliminate 15 cop positions because the province cut the, the transfer payment to the city, so there's an issue there. But like I'm saying, it's not an either-or approach. Right. 
you need the police presence to reassure people and also to address a crisis if, if something does go down. But you also have to, we as a province, have to put more resources on the prevention side. And to me, that means treatment and mental health supports. Wab Canoe, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Manitoba NDP leader Wab Canoe. There is a new survey out. CAA and Bike Winnipeg have done this survey. And the executive director of Bike Winnipeg joins us now to talk about the results of this survey, Mark Coho. Mark, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Hal. Great to be here. Thank you for coming in. Yeah, really appreciate it. You look like you're ready to head out on your bike today. I just got here. I biked here on my way in. You did? You bet. Now, where did you bike from? I biked from uh, Corridon, so fairly easy, down Wellington Crescent, Mm -hmm. uh, into the park, and a little bit of St. James, which isn't the best, but uh, certainly that's one of the areas the city is looking to improve. Yeah, that's right, as I I was wondering what your route was, and yeah, Wellington Crescent, great, eh? You bet. And then, as you said, into uh, into Port. Park here, so I appreciate you coming in, and biking in is even even better. Tell everybody if they've missed the story so far. We've had it in the news a bit today. What's what's the bottom line with this survey? What are, what are the results? What what did we learn from this? Yeah, I think one of the things we learned is that Winnipeggers really are getting out there and enjoying getting on their bikes and really taking. Uh, really seeing we're seeing a return on the investment that we put into our biking uh, facilities in the city. So fully 21% of uh, the people surveyed uh, said that they're biking either daily or a couple of times a week. So we're thinking that's regular people uh, biking. So it's really becoming ingrained uh, in how we live as a city, how we act as a city, and how we get around as a city. Uh, and it's also one of the other great findings, I think, was there's a lot of potential to, to move beyond that. Uh, fully 35% of the people surveyed uh, said that, you know, if we can build the protected bike lanes, the the, continue, the um, neighborhood greenways and the bike paths for them, get them into those good kind of conditions where they're going to feel safe, they're going to feel comfortable, and they're going to be connected to their destinations, they're willing to become those regular cyclists as well. So one in five are doing it now. You bet. And one in three would be prepared to do it if there was better infrastructure for cycling. Exactly. And and one of the things they really pointed out was protected bike lanes are a thing that uh, is pretty much the number one uh, thing that came out to us in that survey was saying that's one of the ways to really encourage people that, to get them on their bikes. Uh, and certainly um, in the core area, which is really out towards Polo Park here, uh, through Osborne Village, through the downtown, Daniel McIntyre, those are really high on the people's priority. And when you say protected bike route, uh, for example, Pembina, that doesn't count with the with the poles, Yeah, eh? not quite. No, okay, what we're looking at is more what they're putting down on McDermott Ballantyne right now, what they've done on Sherbrooke Avenue and Assiniboine Avenue, which, again, uh, when we've put those in, we hear on a regular basis, that's what our members want to see. That's what the people we talk to when we're out uh, biking I want to see. And then certainly on Assiniboine, we know that when we put that in there, it increased the amount of people that were biking on it by 225%. So tripled the amount of people biking through there, and it's still growing. It's really been under construction uh, since it was open. So who knows what we'll get once we start connecting that network up. Yeah, I'm really familiar. You mentioned McDermott. I'm familiar with that because I actually just sold a house on, on McDermott. And when I first saw it, I thought, hmm, now how do I, as as an owner of that home, how do I feel about that? 
Do I like that? Are are homeowners pushing back with that? Are they liking it? What about drivers? Are they saying, well, hang on. Uh, It's great for cyclists, and I understand that, but is there any pushback from anybody else? You know, I think there's concerns about parking, and I think one of the things the city worked really hard to do is make sure that uh, within the area they're maintaining uh, the amount of parking that's available. So you might have to walk uh, half a block where you, instead of parking exactly in front of that store, but certainly the, the parking is still available in that area. Uh, for homeowners, I've actually heard from some homeowners who are, are really happy to see it coming in in the sense that it's going to cut back on some of the traffic and calm some of that traffic coming down their roadway, make it a little more livable for them. That was my conclusion in the end when I saw it. I thought, you know what? This is great for a family with a couple of kids, right? You bet. It just, it just slows things down on their street. It does. And it also, you know, from the business point of view, too, certainly uh, getting more people access on their bikes to your stores is beneficial. We know in other cities where we've put in those protected bike lanes, we've seen pretty substantial increase in the uh, uh, sales going to those businesses. So, for instance, uh, 9th Avenue in New York saw a 49% increase in sales tax at the local shops after they put in protected bike lanes. They compared it across uh, the borough sort of wide through there, and they saw a 3% increase borough-wide versus 49% where they'd put in that protected bike lane. So it does make that huge, huge difference. And and obviously the people who are coming in on bike, they're going to be coming in more often. Uh, they're probably going to be more loyal, more likely to shop local. And you're going to have a better relationship with those customers as well. Interesting. Um, so what do you say to the people? Because whenever we talk about biking and cyclists and stuff, you, you, you hear from both sides. Yep. You hear from the people that we need to do more, love riding my bike. And we hear from the people that go, listen, the road is for cars. And, you know, so uh, if one of those people were to call up now and, and you had to make your argument yep. for more uh, protected bike uh, lanes and, and making the roads better and safer for cyclists, what's your argument? Well, I think we all want to make sure that everyone's getting to their destination safely. But at the same time, uh, I think we recognize that, you know, as this city grows, we're putting a lot of strain on our roadways. And certainly if we can convince, you know, triple that amount of regular cycle people who are cycling, certainly on the daily uh, cycling, it looks like we could actually triple that amount, uh, really increase that amount. That's going to take a lot of pressure off the roadway for people who are driving. And we want to make sure that we're not just catering to drivers, we're not just catering to people that are biking, we're not just catering to transit, but we're making sure that we're giving people real options uh, that they can choose. Uh, and we're finding that when we do create those options, it's not just that people want to drive. They do find they do want to bike occasionally, mm. certainly. Uh, and I think that's one of the great things about having CAA on, on this as well, is that we're seeing that there is that <laughs> cooperation uh, and that it's both sides, uh, you know, whether you're biking or, or driving, there's a lot of uh, commonality between the two. Obviously, there's a lot of overlap. And we see it from both sides that uh, it's it's going to help both whether you're driving, whether you're biking, yeah. and it's going to really help if we design our streets to make it more obvious about how to cooperate and how to coordinate between uh, bikes and cars, make it more intuitive. Uh, I think we'll get along a lot better as well. Yeah, and I agree completely. I think we make it safer for everybody involved, makes it much more clear. If you have any doubts about, you know, how much mm-hmm. space do I give that cyclist or any of that kind of stuff, this kind of deals with all that. Exactly. Yeah. It creates a lot more order in the streets and I think a lot more predictability. Uh, and that drives down a lot of that frustration, which I know yeah. people feel. Right. How far behind is Winnipeg compared to other cities like ours, like, say, Calgary or, yeah. or you know, uh, London or Edmonton? or uh, How far behind are we sure. when it comes to bike paths? I, I think we're kind of middle of the pack in Canada. Uh, I would say, you know, um, compared to a Saskatoon, we're probably ahead. 
Calgary, Edmonton. I think we're uh, between this year and next year, we'll be catching up to where they are. If we look at Montreal or Vancouver, Victoria, certainly we're behind those cities. Um, but, you know, one of the things I think is really refreshing is the city has done a good job of uh, putting in new infrastructure, making a push to, to, to get more in. Uh, and like I said, this is really showing a return on that investment. The people are uh, recognizing that that option is, is there for them and they're really embracing it. And, mm-hmm. and it's exciting to see from, from my standpoint. Yeah. So back to the survey that you at Bike Winnipeg did with CAA, uh, one in uh, five are riding their bike daily or, or a few, or a few times, times a week. week. One in three would if there was better infrastructure for cycling. Uh, any other findings in the uh, survey that you found interesting? Yeah, yeah certainly. Um, the the fact that uh, people are really preferred, uh, they wanted to see a lot more protected bike lanes, especially in the downtown. Uh, there's some regional variation, certainly, and I think the regional variation we see in where they're riding reflects as well as where we've built out our network. So southwest, southeast, and the core, we're seeing more more activity than we're seeing in the northwest, where we really haven't had a chance uh, to get out and put some of that infrastructure in. Uh, but it's also, um, you know, I think seeing that really uh, people do strongly want to see those protected bike lanes was mm-hmm. was really powerful for me to see that. And I think that's going to be a powerful message for candidates coming into the civic election as well. Yeah, so you see this then as, uh, I suppose the timing of this is is meant for that, eh? It's Re- not let's, let's, Yeah, let's talk about this, right? <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. You know, we want to get that discussion moving. Uh, we think we want to, you know, the fact is, is with 21% looking at a potential to hit that 35%, it's something that, it's not really a, a niche kind of uh, part of the public. It's really everyday people that are out there. It's the kid next door. It's your neighbors. It's you, your wife, your spouse, uh, certainly that that are hoping to get out there biking. And there's a lot of benefits that come with it. So mm-hmm. certainly, uh, you know, we're, we have a climate action plan that we should be releasing, I think, uh, fairly soon in this city. Uh, and what we know is that 50% of our emissions in Winnipeg are transportation-related so if we have really any wish to, to, to move down on that, that emissions, we need to think about how we're managing our transportation in the city. And I think this survey is really showing us that uh, getting more people, creating more of that infrastructure for people is an affordable way to, to really move forward and create some progress on that. Yeah. You mentioned uh, the election and, and this being an issue you would like to see uh, brought into the discussion. Let me ask you a lot mm-hmm. of talk about Portage and Maine opening it up to pedestrians. As a cycle organization, as a bike organization, and as a cycling advocate, do you see a <clears throat> pardon me a role at all for cycling at Portage and Maine? Well, I think you know uh, it's certainly not an intersection right now that's uh, friendly for biking through, uh, yeah. especially if you're going straight uh, south on uh, Main Street. You're into that you know two two right turn lanes coming off Main. Yeah. Um, so it you know I think if we if we look if we look at how rapid transit is eventually going to be on Main Street, maybe it's a chance to, to take mm. a look at reconfiguring that, thinking not just about Portage and Maine, yeah. but thinking a little further in the future as mm. well. Uh, and, and again, looking back at how we want to create a city uh, that's going to attract youth and that's going to have those options for people. Mark, thanks a lot for coming in today. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, it's my pleasure, Hal. Mark Coho, Executive Director of Bike Winnipeg. And- as you know, big uh, documentary fan here. I love documentaries. And we're going to talk with uh, the writer and director of a new documentary. Cam Patterson is here, and the documentary is called Aboard the Nemeo. And you may say, well, what is the Nemeo, Hal? The Nemeo is that big blue science research ship 
up on Lake Winnipeg that people often see in Gimli, right, Cam? It is, the big blue one. Yeah, nice to meet you, first nice of all. Nice to meet you, too. This is your third documentary. Before we get into this one, tell me about the other two you did. I did uh, a couple for MTS. I got started with that. Mm-hmm. And we did uh, one with Lori Mustard and Jimmy Gabritson, kind of yeah. a, if you love Switchback, that, yes. I think it's still on there. And it was kind of a sit-down talk with those two guys. And oh, i got to go find that one. I'd love to, because Lori, of course, used to work here at CGOB years ago, and I've known Lori Mustard and Jim Ingebrigtsen yeah. for a long time. Yeah, yeah, he did. And mm-hmm. then you know that those two guys cannot sit down and not do that thing. Exactly, yeah. So, the shtick uh, happens right away. Pretty much even during breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> and what was your other one? Uh, and I did a historical thing on uh, the cab history in Winnipeg. Oh, yeah. That was the first one. Cool. That was kind of fun, actually. We did a reenactment thing. It was all silent movies style stuff and wow yeah because it was all in the 1900s yeah and you were saying you do a lot of true crime stuff yeah lately i did a feature film too in the last year i delivered that and then i've been doing true crime series called in plain sight for frantic films Mm. so it's been a busy few years and then before that i was working with modern drummer and doing videos and right interviewing paul mccartney's drummer and all that it was a lot of fun true crime is so big right now i don't know if net i don't know if netflix caused it because making a murderer and then you know now a, a lot of the stuff on netflix is true crime yeah and it's it's fun Mm. I mean, come on. I mean, where else do you get a gig? Every week you're blowing someone up, killing somebody. <laughs> I mean, how often do you get a call to do that? Yeah. And it's really not, you know, it's the pressure's a little lighter, So, it's, yeah. but it's very fast-paced. Yeah. I like yeah. doing it. It's fun. Cool. Now, tell me about this, uh, the Nemeo. And I, I'll be honest with you. I, I had to ask you today when we were chatting on the phone, how do I say it? I didn't know that ship had a name, but I've seen that ship there many times, and I knew it was yeah. some sort of a research ship. So how did you get this idea? I got to get on that boat. It's funny because I was, I'm also a drummer and I was playing for years with a Gimli artist named Tracy Martin and they have a boat in the harbor and you'd always see it there. Mm -hmm. And I knew something about the issues going on with the lake and we see all the media and all that stuff, right? Yeah. But, um, you know, they said, well, the boat does research and that was the end of the story Mm -hmm. and no one really knew what they were doing. Yeah. And, okay, so that's kind of interesting. But then if you spent any time on Lake Winnipeg, and it sounds like you do. Yeah. So, you know, you know how fast that lake turns. And yeah. the lake is dangerous if you're not cautious. Like, mm-hmm. if you're not paying attention to weather, you're in Even trouble. in a big boat like that, eh? Even in a big boat. Hmm. And um, so that struck me as, who are the people getting on that thing? Yeah. Because a lot of people don't go into the North Basin. Mm-hmm. And even sailors don't really go much beyond the Narrows, right? Right. So that was all fascinating stuff. And I thought, well, let's... That's interesting. So when I approached the consortium and uh, um, MTS, like I approached Cam Bennett and Kim Bell, and Kim's a sailor. He sails out of Gimli all the time. I think he definitely saw it right away. Um, but when I approached them, I said, you know, I really don't want to do some science doc. Yeah. Because um, that's been explored and it's very, mm-hmm. it becomes a very heated conversation for a lot of people. Yeah. I said, I really want to do a POV experience mm-hmm. and, and, and get a sense of the ship. So when I went to the consortium, they came back and they said, how would you like to do a full 11-day trip. Yeah, because you were hoping for a couple days, maybe three I days. Thought, I thought at best I'd get, maybe I'd get some day run down the South Basin, and then I got to fill in the rest and mm-hmm. stuff. You know, but I was really hoping I could actually put you on the boat and not leave you off until we get off. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what they did. The yeah. catch was they didn't <laughs> yeah. have room for a crew. Did you read that? Yeah, I did read that. Yeah. Yes, it was basically, yeah, for 11 yeah. days you're welcome, but there's one bunk and so it's you. It's me. And normally every time I'm directing, I've always hired camera guys who know what they're doing. And uh, so it was a bit of a panic attack. I have to do everything. Um, but I wouldn't trade the experience. It was jaw-dropping. 
Really? Like, to be in the North Base. And the funny thing was, I didn't see a lot of, you know, you go online, there's not a lot of video out there, there's not a lot of stuff that shows you mm-hmm. the North Basin of Lake Winnipeg. Yeah. And I really wanted to show you the scale of that ship out there. And it is an ocean out there. It yeah. feels, it moves, it, the, yeah. the water in the South Basin has that color to it, but the North Basin is blue. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty remarkable. I remember sitting on the back of the boat on about day 10, and one of the scientists was a young guy too, and uh, Brendan Brooks, and he was from U of M. And he and I were at the back of the ship one night just sitting there, and it was breathless. It was, there was no wind, there was nothing. And I just looked at him, I said, you know, a lot of people pay big money for this kind yeah, of no experience. Yeah, no kidding, eh? And it's, it kind of made you feel like it's a shame we don't have the Lord Selkirk sailing there anymore. Yeah. Like somehow we've lost that, that use of the lake, mm-hmm. um, but it's still there. Mm. But it is fierce. We we did have a couple. They do run and hide, even the boat that size. If it gets too bad, they go behind George Island. They find the coves. They get, yeah. they get the people. Get to a safe place. Eh? Get to a safe place. Yeah, it, it gets fast. Mm-hmm. But it's a pretty neat crew. And getting wow. to know the crew is, was, that that really was the POV experience. Yeah. Why yeah. they do it. It's incredible. Yeah. And so what about the research they do? Do you get into that at all in the documentary? I do. I, I touch on that from the sense that they're showing me what they're doing. And uh, they do do a lot. It's not all geared towards, you know, mm-hmm. the LJ and the blue LJ or, and things like that, zebra mussels and, and whatever the panic button is for the lake. Um, they are a true research ship. I mean, there's a lot of organizations outside of Manitoba that actually contract them to get, you know, samples and certain specifics. They have stations all over the lake. So mm-hmm. they go to the exact same stations. There's over 60 of them. And they perform, you know, different processes of science and depending on what's required as well or what people, other science organizations have ordered. Mm-hmm. Um, but the concentration is to study fisheries. Um, the other thing is to study water quality, turbidity. Um, the LJ is part of it, you know, and, and uh, there's a whole host of things. They do the deep water stuff. They go, they have a... a uh, what do they call? They call it a yawl. I don't know why they call that boat a yawl, but it's it's a you know it's a nice yeah. big boat, mm. dual engine thing, and it gets craned off the ship all the time, and they'll go in and do nearshore with that. And now they actually have a separate vessel too that they actually do specific stuff. They'll go on tours all along the shoreline with mm. it. But uh, so they're covering every aspect of the lake. Yeah, and it's pretty remarkable. But it's, it's a fascinating experience. I recommend anybody going. Yeah. Just well, I can't trip. wait to see the documentary. It's yeah. going to be uh, at the Gimli Film Festival this weekend. It is, and it's taken on a bit of a fevered pitch. They had, um, there's two showings. One is Friday morning at 10.30 in the morning, and I think it's at the Lady of the Lake. And then on Saturday, it's at 5.30, and they're doing some Q&A, and the research guys, uh, the whole, Al Chris Arfson and the whole team at uh, Lake Winnipeg Research Consortium are all getting involved in that one. And that's at 5.30 at the Aspire Theater, which I think is in the church yeah, or something. right. Um, and a lot of people called my son phone me, actually, too, and he said, hey, it's sold out. And uh, so the advanced tickets are all sold out, but apparently I found out that they keep 50% of the tickets for the walk-up. So mm-hmm. you can still see it. You just kind of got to make sure you're there a half hour or something before screen time. Yeah, and then it will eventually be on MTS TV as well? It's actually, you can actually watch it on MTS Bell right now. Ah, It's okay. in their VOD section for Stories from Home on the Notable tab. I don't okay. know if that means anything, but I'd yeah. like to think it does. Yeah. Um, and then we're pitching it off to other festivals too, hopefully Whistler, hopefully Hawaii, Iceland for sure. Um, and then some other broadcasters we're searching for too. Yeah. yeah. I, I have told people 
on my show a lot that I'm a big doc fan and I like watching docs. Yeah. What's the best part about, uh, it sounds like you've done other stuff, music videos and things. What's mm -hmm. the best part about doing a documentary? The best part about doing this doc was actually the hands-on approach to doing it. You know, the real experience behind doing it. Sometimes you're working in archives or you're trying to build the story and you've got a subject matter and that's all great. Mm. Um, but this one was truly going on the boat and truly doing it. Yeah. And, and uh, I had a program. I didn't want to use any photographs in the doc. I didn't want any, you know, the staple things that yeah. are doc feeling. Right. I just wanted to keep you on the boat from the time we get on to the time I let you off. Yeah. And, and try and get that experience. And hopefully we succeeded. But Very you really get cool. to know the crew. The crew. Yeah. I couldn't believe the crew. They, you actually feel it, I think, at the yeah. start till the end, how they warm up to the idea of having yeah. a camera around you. Well, I think, you know, just in watching a lot of documentaries, that's what I've come to realize. Everybody's got a great story. Yeah. I don't care who it is, right? No, I absolutely. mean, it's true, eh? There are so many great stories out there. Yeah. And there was great stories on the boat, like with these people and their backgrounds. And, and uh, there was a father-son thing going on. And... And the different scientists and why they were there and why they got interested. The guys working on the ship, never mind, you know. There's one guy that's a vet from Selkirk, and he goes every year. One scientist, uh, Desiree Stratton, is is uh, from the Manitoba Water Board. That's her vacation every year. Hmm. And and they just love it. And hmm. even though this aspect is there that, yeah, some days you're walking around with a raincoat, one scientist suffered from seasickness, like horribly, still goes. Yeah. You know, it's just their dedication is ridiculous. Mm. And they're not just talking about the lake. They're actually, you know, I think proactively in their minds. I don't think it's the fact the lake's dying. I, that's a misnomer. I think to some degree that's an overstatement. But, uh, and the consortium will definitely tell you that. Yeah. But there is issues and there is things we need to be focused on. We need to be proactive about yeah. the lake. And we these need people to help. care about the lake. They care about the lake and they're really fundamentally out there trying to research science so some solutions get found. Hmm. Well, listen, I, I think a lot of people are going to want to watch it. A lot of people that go to the lake have mm. a cottage up there as I do, right? Yeah. I mean, we see the lake. We love the lake. We know how big it is. We see that boat and, and like you, what's the deal with the boat? Is well, a now, fishing boat? What is that? Yeah, now we can uh, watch <laughs> yeah. the documentary and, yeah. and find out about all that. And Very go for cool. a trip for 11 days. Yeah, right. Would you go again? You'd go again in, in a second, a eh? a heartbeat, man. Yeah. I've never eaten so well in 11. It was unbelievable. <laughs> that was the running joke. Was, yeah. God, you fed so well. But yeah. I would absolutely go again. Is there, when you have a great experience like that as a filmmaker, do you try yeah. and figure out a way to do a sequel? I don't know how the sequel would be. Yeah. Um, you know, go in the fall time. I think, I think they did caution me. They said, if you wanted to go in the fall, then you're really dealing with the weather. Really? And I thought, wow, then you're dealing with the cold. And if that doesn't say what these people are determined to do mm -hmm. you know so yeah. maybe well, that's the sequel yeah the fall run right <laughs> yeah well let's stay in touch because it sounds like you're doing a lot of cool stuff so i appreciate you coming in today and telling us about it thanks for having me on it cam patterson aboard the mayo at the gimli film festival this weekend and then on mts bell television as well